Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. I think. Which, of course, is Romanian for Achtung, Achtung. <laughs> it's getting more and more ridiculous. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. For any newcomers, a quick word of explanation. This is the Second World War podcast, which rambles off up blind alleys and gets trapped in small haylofts just as the Germans come storming into the front yard. We have almost no discipline and very little respect for authority. If you're looking for a linear narrative, you've come to the wrong place. But if you want to find about, out about forgotten heroes and dastardly villains, this is the place for you. Thank you, Al. And uh, we've had a lot of questions into our hashtag, We Have Ways, and uh, we're planning to answer as many of those as we can over the next 45 minutes or so. Yep. So please do keep sending them in. Um, we'll do our level best to answer as many as we possibly can. They're certainly leading us down some fascinating paths. And... Um, 
How about a few kind words for the ridiculously underappreciated Brigadier Frederick Morgan and his regrettably out-of-print memoir, Overture to Overlad, Overlord Lads? And that's by my friend Mike Dolan, who's in Washington. Right. He's an editor of a history magazine in the USA and a fine fellow he is too. Um, uh, yeah, well, you know, Frederick Morgan. So Frederick Morgan actually serves in, in um, he's a brigade commander, if I remember rightly, in Norway in 1940. You know, rather sort of failed in land debacle. effort. Yeah. yeah, yeah, debacle. Not at sea, but on land. Um, Royal Navy do quite well at sea, yeah. but, but on land, certainly they don't. The British Army doesn't do particularly well. Comes back, and um, yeah, in 19, April 1943, he's made uh, Cossack, which is Chief of Staff for the Supreme Allied Commander. And they and his team um, are given the tools with which to kind of start doing early preliminary plans for Operation Overlord, which yeah. is going to be D-Day and the invasion of Normandy. Yeah. So you, they basically got someone in who knew, who had an experience of a um, disastrous amphibious landing. Um, <laughs> yes. Not, not a bad, not a bad place to start really. Uh, well, you learn the lessons you'd hope. Yeah. Was, I think, I think Morgan's a very safe pair of hands. He's yep. very pragmatic. Um, he works very well with his combined um, coalition staff of Americans and Brits and so on. Yeah. Um, and the plan he comes up with is the best possible plan he could have come up with with the limitations that are imposed upon him, which is considerably less shipping than is given to the new team when they take over at the beginning of 1944. Yes. And the new team that take over at the beginning of 1944 is led by Montgomery, who comes in and basically airbrushes Freddie Morgan from history Um Tears up the plan, says you're going to have to expand the whole thing. You're not putting enough men down in the first instance. And he's come from experience of the Sicily landing, after all. Yep. Um, uh, and and that's why we don't know about Morgan, because of um, bossy old Monty coming in and elbowing him to one side. And Well, it is, a di- you know, to be fair, it is a different plan. And, you know, Morgan is just, you know, he is, by this stage, a staff officer. He yeah. is doing what he's doing. And, you know, he did write a book, which did quite well post-war. And, you know, there's plenty of people who did an awful lot more than Morgan who are also completely, uh, completely forgotten. Yeah. I mean, basically, but he you chose know, more. He chose Normandy, though, didn't he? It, he it, chose not. Well, no, Mountbatten chose right. Normandy when he was. So before Morgan, it was combined operations that were given the, the, the task yeah. of sort of looking into where we, they might go. And it was it was actually Mountbatten's idea, of course, by... By beginning of 1944, Mountbatten is now um, Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command, yeah. um, and a very good appointment that was. So he's sort of slightly out of the picture, to be perfectly honest. Um, but the the plan is kind of, you know, it's a three-beach plan, not a five-beach yeah. plan. It's yeah. kind of, you know, it hasn't got the airborne forces, hasn't got the shi- you know, it just hasn't got the shipping to do yeah. it. And, and Montgomery takes one look at it as um, Beadle Smith, who is Eisenhower's chief of staff, and Eisenhower, of course, is Supreme Allied Commander, they all look at it and they all come to exactly the same conclusion, which is this is just undercooked. It's just, this, this, not this not enough. More. It's not Morgan's fault. He's doing what he's, he's – the plan he's come up with yeah. is with the tools he's been given. Yeah. But when you've got the big boys in town, they can impose themselves more and insist upon more shipping. The problem for the Allies is at the end of 1943, 1944, there aren't enough landing ships, which is a big thing. The big thing about Normandy is there is no port. Yeah. You know, there is port on bassin there is there is Aramanche, which are tiny, tiny little fishing ports. There is Cherbourg, which is in German hands and is heavily defended and mm. will be destroyed before mm. the Germans hand it over. There is, of course, Wiesterham. Um, so there isn't a major port they can use. So how else are they going to get their their 
all their supplies over. You know, the Allies have this huge material advantage. The problem you've got when you come to D-Day is the race is on between the Allies trying to establish a bridgehead from which they cannot be pushed back into the sea and the Germans trying to get, having sussed out where the main invasion is is taking place, getting their mobile reserves, their panzer divisions, their armoured divisions up to Normandy to do that concentrated counterattack. And so the race is on on the build-up of supplies. Who can get an overwhelming amount of force into that coastal area quickest? And the problem is, is not the millions of men and tens of hundreds of thousands of trucks and tanks and all the rest of it that are back here in England and and Britain. It's how you get them across the channel to make sure that the amphibious invasion isn't a failure. And that is the thing that trumps absolutely everything when considering evasion. As long as you get that foothold, you are going to win. Whether it takes you 77 days, 90 days, 120 days is, is to a certain point neither here nor there. I mean, it is. It is important, of course, because yeah, yeah. you want to get on with win, win the war. But the most important thing is that it doesn't fail. And even with the resources the Allies have, even with the intelligence they have on the Germans, even by keeping their um, invasion location and date a secret from the Germans, there is still much, much that can go wrong. Yeah. And yeah. there are also all these demands for shipping all across the, across, across the, the world, world by this, yeah, this yeah. is a global war you know you, you, don't, you don't get onto islands you know some atoll in the pacific without shipping you know you you, you can't uh, invade southern france which yeah. eisen has very keen for without yeah. shipping you know there are so many advances and there's just not enough there's not enough landing ships which are these much bigger ships flat bottomed yeah. ships which can actually carry serious amount of supplies which you just land straight onto the beach yeah. Unload them. Well, and and, and and to the extent, uh, um, by the by the summer of nineteen forty four, there are enough. They've made the effort, haven't they? And so, when the Mul- second Mulberry fails on Omaha Beach, they just they they sail the strips ship straight onto the beach, yes. don't they? And yeah. disgorge the supplies that way. Absolutely, and they that that works because of these breakwaters yeah. off every yeah, yeah. every beach, which has been created by these yeah. sunken ships, yeah. which are called gooseberries, yeah. codenamed gooseberries, um, which is part of the whole Mulberry planning. Mm. So that there are these breakwaters off the coast, yeah. which just enables the whole unloading onto these beaches yeah. from these flat bottom landing ships possible. I mean, it is absolutely brilliantly done. I mean, when it comes to kind of big war, big chain logistics, no, there is no one to touch the British and the Americans. No. And Morgan Morgan played his part. So uh, that was a few. I think a few. That was a few kind words we offered there for Michael. Yeah. No. I mean, he, he's he's an <laughs> admirable guy, and he deserves the credit for he what he did. His you part, know. but you know, they had to call in Monty. That's yep. all I'm going to say. So, why was the unit training in the oh. British Army relatively inconsistent? For example, Monty's 3rd Division, better trained in 1940, than most contemporaries, same detail, Hobart's mobile force in Egypt in 1939, or Pitt Roberts' 11th Armoured Division 1944, says Mitch A. Palooza. Mitch A. Palooza. Well, well, that's to do with how the, how the British Army um, uh, had, had operated um, traditionally, is that is that generals was generals in divisions were in charge of that rather than there being a sort of consistent thing for because because the british army is a i mean i think we've talked about this a little bit before is you know is an imperial is an imperial outfit and you you know you might be in waziristan you might be in malta you might be in uh uh you know you look at what happened before the first world where you might be in south africa suddenly and and the, and there's no point there's no point in the run-up to a Second World War, that you don't want to fight, and you've got the, your actual job of policing the empire, 
as, as your army role, there's no point laying down a particular way of training people. So that's why it's in, that's why unit training in the army is inconsistent. And you get people like Montgomery, who I mean, uh, and he, he he comes up in discussions of training in the in the war a great deal because it was his thing. It was his it was the thing. His absolute bugbear was getting people fit. And and third division in 1940 were the best rehearsed division um, in the BEF. And he, I mean, he very presently practised retreating quite a lot, getting over rivers at night, um, getting out of getting out of difficult situations and keeping the keeping the division together. And that's him. It's it, and, and, and it's very much, it very much comes down to um, individuals, a lot of this. And, uh, 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 you know, and Hobart's an exception as well because he's a sort of he's a he's a, a, one of the military intellectuals. That I think you can call him that, knocking around in the thirties. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I, I do think that the British, um, you know, there is a tradition of eccentricity yeah. and mavericks, and and we have celebrated mavericks. And there's a kind of sort of strange paradox. That on the one hand, the British are considered to be incredibly stiff and you know traditional and all the rest of it, and yet there is an an embracing of mavericks and eccentrics yeah. in Britain in British culture, certainly more so, I think, then than than perhaps now, but certainly then, and that that reaches into the armed forces, I think, mm. Mm. in a way that perhaps other other armies maybe not. I mean, the other thing I would say is that I think by 1944, things are slightly different because of Monty's training, um, because of Alexander, General Alexander, or Field Marshal Alexander, as he is by, by late 1944. Um, his introduction of the battle schools, which, yeah. you know, puts live ammunition for training. There is a sort of consistency of training. And I think certainly by 1944, by Normandy, if, you know, if, if, if that is your mean line of a not bad modern yeah. division i think that the, the wave lines kind of sort of quiver flutter sort of either side of that but not by a huge amount but the thing is is that the, the by 1944 you're kind of on the third army anyway that, yes, that you the are. british have raised so you've had the you've had the bef who are who which are, is the pre-war professional pre-war army professionals and, and territorials and and so is a, is is a sort of is is a remnant of the, of yep. that and then you have a second army raised um, uh, that, that, that again, I mean, not the second army, but a, another army raised that ends up in North Africa, that yep. ends up in Italy, that ends up in the Far East. Yep. And then a third army, and that that army's job is the, the war in northwest northwestern Europe, the Normandy Normandy to the Baltic. Yep. And 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 by the third iteration they've kind of got it worked out they've yep. they've got they've got their systems in place they've yep. got they've worked out their way of war yeah they exactly and so the tra- and the training is more is more uniform but certainly at the start of the of the war you know the, the, you've got you've got you've got this whole officer culture that has you've had a, there have been intellectuals but then there's been gentlemen amateurs and then there's been people uh, playing polo yep. and, and not not interested. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. But I also think that by 1944, uh, you, you've still got that, uh, as a divisional commander, you've still got a chance to impose yourself and make your division better than another yeah, division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that that's always going to be the case. And, and it's not just a commander, it's also whether there's a, you know, there's a... Um, a sort of gelling between that commander and his immediate subordinate commanders, yeah. which then filters but down. You've also, but you've also got you've got Adam as 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 the adjutant general. Yes, who uh, and and uh, who's I mean, a corps commander in 1940. Yeah, and I think one of the most fascinating things about the about the 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 way the army started looking at its men is they 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 come to this assessment that that they're not going to be able to ask of their of the men what 
Um, they were what they did in the First World War. They've got to approach them differently. They think they're softer. They think they're, um, you know, I mean, and they actually sound sort of like they sound like your dad going on about kids these days. Yeah. Some of these generals, are, you know, they're, they're softer, they're lazier, they're not, they're not as physically fit or rugged as the lads were when I was a when I was a subaltern and all that sort of thing. And that's really interesting, and that's taken into account in the way the you know the army's got. Got, uh, things we don't think of as being from the forties, like lots of psychological profiling and lots of yep. lots of resources spent on, on on psychology and dealing with war and dealing with dealing with what you ask of the men and how you motivate them and how you motivate them culturally and politically. Whether you motivate them politically, you know, uh, uh, all that sort of things in the mix. And 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 certainly by the by the end of the war, that's all kind of more uniform. And at the start, they're they're just making it up because after all, the Second World War is the war no one thought was going to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, so the army was looking in another direction, uh, and politicians also were spending money on air forces, and uh, or British politicians were spending money on air forces and navies, and trying to avoid yep. recruiting a great big army and the problems that come with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was the whole point of the French alliance in, yeah. in 1939. France it. would do the land bit. Yeah, we'll do naval power and we'll do a bit of air power as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so suddenly after the fall of France and Dunkirk, it's sort of crikey, what are we going to do? Yeah. So suddenly they're having to go from a kind of sort of ten division army to a um, you know a fifty plus fifty two yeah. division army. You know, and that's what they st- a fifty five division army rather. Yeah. That's what they stick with until the end of the war. I yeah. mean, it's phenomenal. And it's and again, the actual proportion of that army that is actually frontline fighting troops yeah. is comparatively small. And you know, Britain's a better nation as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we just are. Yeah. Um, but the Germans, in contrast, I mean, you've got that that if you go back to that mean line again, and if you can if you think British and American divisions tend to kind of sort of wobble either side of it just a little bit, the Germans are kind of leaping wildly either yeah. side of that mean line. I mean, you can have some yeah. really dreadful divisions, certainly by 1944, uh, and even by even in 1940. I mean, I think it's only 32 percent or something of the of the armies that invade um, France and the Low Countries in May 1940 are fully trained. Yeah. Amazingly, yeah, you know, we, incredibly. you know, our, our benchmark machine, is, yeah, yeah. Are, are the Panzer divisions, which amount to only ten out of one hundred and thirty-five yeah. yeah. that are employed in the in the Blitzkrieg. So it's, um, you know, it's it, there's a not a consistency there. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back from that necessary break. Um, uh, my comfort, if you're wondering. Um, uh, we've got some more questions now. There's a question here with a word, a magic word in it for me. Was the Piat actually any good? Yes. And first of all, what we should just say is, what is a Piat? Well, yes. Well, and that's Dave Ben's question. Well, a Piat is, um, uh, well, it's a handheld, a man-operated handheld anti-tank weapon. Which yep. is, b- before we even get into the, the the fact it's a spigot mortar, whatever that is. And we the, should say the acronym. It, uh, uh, it's Projectile Infantry Anti-Tank. Yeah. And so you might think of a bazooka as an as a as a shoulder-worn anti-tank weapon. You might um know about the Panzerfaust which is the thing that looks like a sort of plant pot with a rocket in it that, on a stick that 
that you'd fire at a tank. But the, the British solution is this thing called the Piat, and it's a spigot mortar. And what that means is, rather than launch something from a barrel, the projectile itself has the barrel on it and sits on a prong in the, in the weapon. And you, you cut, you, I mean, it's such a strange, it's such a strange device, this, but actually not, not bad. And it's had a bad, bad, bad press because it's so strange. And basically it has an enormous spring in it. And you lie down, you put your, you put your feet and you cock the spring. Um, and, and then the spring fires, fires into the, up the tube in the projectile, which then fires a charge and launches the projectile. And, Great, one of the great, and the, and the spring is recocked by the by the action of the projectile launching, so you only have to cock it the once in theory. Now, obviously, all handheld, man-operated, you know, uh, anti-tank weapons, right from when they were first started in the First World War, where it's rifles for shooting hostile tanks, you've got to get bloody close. You've got to be incredibly brave. And that's still true in 1945. No matter how much better, and I'm, I'm doing my wavy inverted comma fingers there, no matter how much better effective these weapons get, the simple, the zero sum game of it is you have to get within 30, 20 yards of the thing to hope that your shot counts, which means you've got to be incredibly brave. The tanking questions supporting infantry have got to be blind probably or being kept down by machine gun fire from your own people to enable you to get close enough and you've got to have balls of um of steel of absolute steel and so where i always think when people go oh, it appear it wasn't very good i mean it had a big spring in it and it goes ping and i've seen it on a bridge too far and they miss and it goes ping and it looks ridiculous fine i mean you can say it looks ridiculous as much as you like if you're the poor sod that's got to um uh, crawl up close to something and and use it You've got to, and what's really interesting about it um, is plenty of people have plenty of success with the thing if they're well trained on it, like any weapon. Yep. They're well trained on it, they know how to use it, they know its limitations, and they use it in circumstances where they're well supported. And you see, uh, or where they're just determined. So, um, you know, Major Robert Kane, um, who picked up a, a Victoria Cross, is, I think, was Jeremy Clarkson's ex father in law or something. That's right, yeah. Some, some strange, strange showbiz uh, thing. He picked up a Victoria Cross at, at Arnhem. And he would go out with the pier, with a pier on his own, and he's normally operated by two men, one a loader and a a loader and a and a, a guy firing it. But he would go out with the piers on his own and stalk tanks, and knock and probably not tigers, probably Panzer fours, or Stugs Stug threes. Well, you get up the backside. Does it doesn't matter. I mean, he's still got to get within twenty to thirty yards of this thing, or twenty to thirty feet even. Yeah, and and land a you know literally lob a bomb onto the thing. So. I'm not going to. I'm not going to knock. I'm not going to knock the pit, and I'm not going to knock anyone who used a pit. No, absolutely not. Well, of course, you know, the other day we were talking about um, about the uh, the bridges on the Dive. Yeah, and we're also referencing Pegasus Bridge, and and the Orn, you know, yeah. and, and the the bridge over the Orn, the, the Horsa Bridge, and of course on that night about you know the the. Um, um, the D Company of the Ox and Bucks have been have, have managed to secure both bridges. They're holding them. They're waiting for the for the counterattack. The counterattack comes uh, at about two o'clock in the morning when a number of tanks, German tanks, I think yeah. the Mark IV, start rumbling down the road from Benouville, which is on the western side, towards them. And Sergeant Wagger Thornton, um, who has actually been in the team that have captured the Horsa Bridge, 
charges up to this tank, yeah. um, sees the, the, the crew in the tank aren't aware these guys are there on the bridge already. So some of the crew from the leading tank get out and start conversing yeah. with the tank behind, you know, where should we be? Who, you know, there's yeah. been reports of whatever. You can imagine what the conversation was. And he gets within an inch of this leading tank, gets on his knee and fires his pier and yeah. it brews up. Yeah. And it's a massive, the whole thing explodes because it's absolutely stuffed full of ammunition. And the whole thing blows up. It's one of the few tanks of 21st Panzer that actually has got some ammunition that night. <laughs> and the rest kind of hastily withdraw. Yeah. And, you know, had those tanks pressed home their advantage, at that stage of the proceedings, could it's very hard to think that the Ox and Bucks could have held on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is a pier that saves D Day. There you go. Good. That's good enough for me. The because the because the thing is is um, it, I I mean it's such it's such an interesting genesis and spigot mortars turn up all, actually all over the place. So depth charges when you when you you know you watch a watch a, the cruel sea and they're firing those things off the side of a boat, off the side of a ship that you know pop into the water. Those are spigot mortars. Yeah. That's a, that. So the a spigot mortar basically there's a prong and the and the uh, the projectile is a tube sat on it yeah. and it fires a charge and launches itself. Yeah. And then the flying dustbin, which is of course um, on a Churchill AVRE, which is the, you know, the, 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 the Royal engineers had a series of armored vehicles, armored vehicle, Royal engineers. And the flying dustbin was a, was an enormous, was a, was a, an enormous pla- uh, explosive charge fired from the turret of a, a tank. A, yeah. A, you know, so, so the range is, Tiny, isn't it's it? Tiny. But it's a bunker buster. Yeah, your bunker buster. So you'd pull up, you'd pull up at the bunker, and lob this great big slab of explosive at it, and that was a spigot mortar. Mm. And it's this fellow, um, Colonel Blacker, who was um, obsessed with spigot mortars, and who'd been a, he'd been a soldier in the in uh, on the you know in the Kyber Pass or somewhere like that in the twenties. It's one of the first people to teach himself to fly. Um, uh, uh, it, when when the you know he's a first World War sort of adventurer guy and then did some did some frontier soldiering in the 20s and then got into basically in the war got into developing um weapon systems or weapons and his thing was the spigot mortar and his answer to absolutely everything was the spigot mortar and the <laughs> and the home guard were equipped with a thing called the blacker bombard which yes. is an enormous of yeah. spider-like frame with with one of these spigot mortar launches launches on it, and there are photos of you know these guys sat on this sort of strange frame, and and they're obviously supposed to fire it, and it goes ping, and then you run around the front and clip another one on, and it goes ping again, and and he made I think he got paid forty thousand pounds by the war office for the for the blacker bombard, and then there was a then there was a struggle within the weapons development. Um, uh, someone went actually that would be we could use this much more usefully on a on a handheld anti tank weapon. And and Blacker's idea got co-opted and turned into the pit. But it, it it I I the thing is is I just I think the people reason people don't rate it is because it doesn't go bang whoosh like like a bazooka or a Panzerfaust. It doesn't I, go, I, I think it it's because you've got to use your feet to kind of. Well, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. It doesn't do a big snazzy whoosh bang explosion. You have to. You've got to cock it, and it looks daft. And and maybe you've got to stand up to cock it. And that's the other thing is some people describe having you have to get up. Get up to cook, yep. cock it, put your feet in it and cock it, and that's that's quite dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Looking down the barrel, as yeah, exactly, you do it. exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of, um, but I think every side has weapons envy, don't they? Yeah, yeah, always. I mean, because the, I mean, the, this is the thing. Because we, we we're talking about tank busting. I have with me um, 
It's a gift from a friend of mine, uh, Robin Schaefer, who's a German um, historian, which is a, a military historian, which is the optic from a tiger tank. It's absolutely amazing, isn't and it? And it's how thick is that? That glass. I mean, it's, it seems to be. Is that, is that just solid glass in there? I, I, I don't know. It looks like several pieces. Have a look. It does look like several pieces, and it looks like they're all just look, sat look, together, sort of laminated or, or just sat together. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't look bigger, so it's just. No, it's just a window, isn't it? Bulletproof window. Bulletproof actually, window. Is that a bullet a, hole? There's a bullet mark on it. There's a That's scuff amazing, on it. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But but tigers were susceptible even to even to pits. If you got. If you got up behind them, got up right behind them. And Everything got, had its Achilles heel. Yeah, and actually, you know, the frontal armour on the tiger wasn't as much as a Churchill tank. Yes, yeah. Well, the later marks of the Churchill, yeah, yeah. It was easily as easily as as th- thicker, wasn't it? The Churchill, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. tigers, I mean, you know, we were just looking at a picture, weren't we, earlier on? Of um, actually, I've got it here of, of Michael Wittmann, the the famed Panzer race in his tiger. And when you when you when you see pictures of of Wehrmacht soldiers beside, beside yeah. the Panzer Mark One. It's about yeah. six foot high. It's got a brace yeah. of machine guns. And he, yeah, it really does look puny. But when you look at Wittmann in the turret, there, it's I mean, a monster. Look at him. He's an absolute beast, isn't it? You can see why it kind of put the fear of God into yeah. anyone who came up against it. Um, you wouldn't even you even needed to see one though. You'd have just have had to heard about heard about them squeaking and rumbling yeah. and yeah. all the rest of yeah. it. But yeah. you know, the problem with the tiger, of course, is just not enough of them. Mm. and not enough fuel and not enough mm. repairs and mm. too complicated yeah I think there were 1,347 in fact I know there were um, <laughs> tigers built <laughs> and 492 how king were, tigers how many were there in um, in Normandy on D-Day there were none on D-Day but within a few days there were, there were 136 how, well, in total. Yeah, sorry, so how many were de- deployed in total to 136 Normandy? so they're really actually doing a lot of work on the Russian front rather than they're doing most well, of the business the, the, on the, the problem front. with although there was 1,347, once they were knocked out, they tended to stay knocked out yeah. because they were just so enormous that there, there weren't the tank wreckers to... I mean, one of the many advantages of having a, a your main battle tank as a, a 30-ton tank is that you've got the machinery to kind of move them around. Yeah. So if they get, you know, shed a track or run out of fuel or have a kind of bit of... I don't know turret, turret gets stuck or whatever it might be. You you know as soon as it's dark, you beetle over with your tank wrecker or your low loader or whatever. And you can just whisk it. it away again. You just can't do that when a tank is fifty six tons or seventy two tons, like the like the Königstiger. I mean, you just you just can't. Yeah. So they tend to just stay there forever, and because you're on the defensive for the most part, it's very easy for your discarded battle tanks to then be overrun by the enemy, who then get them. Yeah. In this case, the Allies in Normandy. Yeah. Where or or the Russians or whatever, um, whereas if you're on the attack, you might get hit, but you're likely to go past it, so you've got more time to then retrieve it. So yeah. all those things come into play, and, and what that means is there's not a huge amount of tigers in the same time as 130 odd tigers in Normandy. There's probably not that many more in Eastern Front. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of them have already are already dead, already already uh, done or, for. Or, you know, still coming off the factory line and are going to soon be dead. I mean, they're just, you know, it's just not that many of them. It's it's a completely impractical tank for Germany in the Second World War. Yet, they don't have the support for it. Yet, if you go to Bovingdon, um, the, the Tiger Hall is the busiest bit of the museum. Because they're also Tiger and, and infamous the, the, and, and, yeah. and because they, they represent something that we all think is, you know, and also, you know, if you're, if you're on the attack and you're, you're the Allies and you won the war at the end of it, you, you did that despite coming up against Tiger tanks. Yeah. 
So that makes you feel a little bit better, and, and it makes <laughs> and it makes it makes Commando comics more fun. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and you look at it, and you know, we're just looking at this photo now, and we'll yeah. we'll post up this photo. But I mean, I, I look at it, you just think, holy moly, yeah. for nineteen forty four. I mean, that is just an absolute yeah. enormous weapon. Well, but enough words still... about an enormous weapon. That's it for today. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for listening. And remember the hashtag for all your questions, observations, corrections, etc. And we exp- we hope for corrections because we don't we don't know everything we're talking about here. It's hashtag We Have Ways. See you next time. Yep. Cheerio.